Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Non-Contact Time, a podcast about all things educational with Kath and Hannah. I'm Kath. I'm Hannah. Welcome to the show. So Hannah, what's on the agenda today? Okay, so in data, we're going to recommend some books for first-year teachers or some experienced teachers who want to switch up some of their strategies. In teaching and learning, we're going to speak to Dr. Rhiannon Packer and Dr. Susan Davis, and they're going to explain how to differentiate for shy children. In Pupils Causing Concern, we're going to talk about the contradictions in the government policies referring to coronavirus. And in any other business, you're going to hear about some upcoming episodes and how you can get involved. So let's get on. So we thought in data today, we would talk a little bit about some of the things that you could read, particularly if you're new to teaching or looking for something that will help you build some educational strategies or learn a little bit more about the psychology of teaching. And um, I think knowing what other people access really, really helps people. We're going to recommend some books, we're going to recommend some websites and also just give you some ideas of where you could access information if you're really, really looking for something new. What have you got there, Hannah? I have got a book called Getting the Buggers to Behave by Sue Cowley. And I found a section, it's on page 177, and it's about training your children. So this book is brilliant. It's got loads of examples of scenarios and reasons for behavior. And this particular section is talking about the film Kindergarten Cop and talks about how Arnold Schwarzenegger trains his class of young children as though they are at a police academy. And it explains things like how to do your morning routine, how you get students to respond to your signals, dealing with equipment. And it's just really useful. There's loads of tips in here. It's quite a big book. So for me, I would probably look in the index at the back, flip through some of the sections, have a look at what's relevant because there's so much in here that's really useful. And even as an experienced teacher, there's stuff in here that I think I I could use even now because there's lo- there's just so many strategies. Well, I was just going to say that Sue Cowley book was the first book that was recommended to me when I first moved to the UK. All the agencies would say, make sure you read a Sue Cowley book. And we actually talked about it last episode too, those um, tips for NQTs and she's got a lot of books out there that you can read about and they're really really good 
Um, the book that I always recommend to people is Why Kids Don't Like School. It's by Daniel T. Willington. And um, I, my copy of this book is so well read. It's dog-eared, it's highlighted, it has bookmarks in it. Because when I've been reading it, I always put in like little bookmarks to remind me where to go back to to read things. Um, it talks a lot about contextual knowledge. So those students who fall behind tend to not have that contextual knowledge outside of the classroom. So if they're learning a new concept, they only learn that concept in the, the structure of a classroom and don't read it in books because they're not reading at home or they're not playing games with their family or they don't have conversations with their family. And it helps you to kind of understand why there's some students that really, really hate school. It's a really good section on revision that talks about if you do five minutes a day, it's actually better than cramming. And I always get that section out and read it to GCSE kids sort of midway through the year or on the lead up to marks, because it actually talks about how the working memory works for students. And um, they don't always believe me, but it's always good to just like signpost it for them. But it's a really, really good book. It's been recommended to me so many times. And um, once I think one of my managers recommended it to me and I actually pulled it off my desk and went, it's already here, it's next <laughs> to me. <laughs> but it's always on my desk. It's actually sitting by my computer as we speak. I do like that book. And I think that's one of the books that I have been able to read or, well, not read, listen to in the car on audiobook because I like to do that because reading for me takes up a lot of time and sometimes I don't have the time in the day to do that so listening to audiobooks that's a great one to listen to however you've told me that I've missed out on all the amazing images and oh, yeah. graphs and stuff <laughs> so I'm gonna have to actually buy it now and look through all the pictures there's lots of visuals which for me is a really good thing and I'm, I'm definitely the person that goes see figure 1.2 and I will actually go and look at it it makes more sense to me I'm very visual <laughs> so yes you will have to look at, you can borrow my book and look at the visuals <laughs> missing out on that one <laughs> okay so my next recommend is the lazy teachers handbook by jim smith and i think all the conversations we've had in series one about work-life balance and speaking to james about his experiences in the book that he's written i think sometimes you've just got to find an effective way to do something in a short amount of time because tasks a lot of the tasks that we do as teachers you can spend hours and hours marking and doing you know making sure everything's perfect but if there's a better way that still keeps students engaged and still keeps them learning but you get to shave off a bit of time you know I'm all for that so I looked at um a couple of things in this book and there's lots of things about workload so there's questions for teachers such as you know why have why have you printed paper copies could you do it better what types of activities will this lead to? And, and it kind of makes you question your practice as a teacher. And it does give you the solutions, but I think looking at those questions is really important because you don't want to just use the solutions in somebody's book. You want someone to be thought provoking so that you can think of solutions that work for the students in your environments. Um, so this book's really helpful. And just like the Getting the Buggers to Behave book, it, there's loads of short sections, loads of little chapters. I mean it's split, split up into paragraphs. So, you know, it's really good for, if you want to just flick through the book and stop on a certain page and just read that one bit and, you know, try and implement that. Or if you're looking for something specific, there's an index in the back that tells you, you know, all the stuff that's involved in the book. So it's really good. I find that one really useful if I want to flick through some things and want something to keep my workload down. 
Brilliant. Um, I've got a book that's about psychology and I actually read it um, many, many years ago, picked it up again over the summer. It's a book called Touched by Fire and it's actually about how creative brains work and how there's a massive link to mental health but also um, people who have mental disorders. And it talks about um, people we know, people like Lord Byron and Vincent van Gogh and all these people that we know suffered from depression or suffered from some sort of mental problem in their time. And it talks about why creativity is a really big part of their survival strategies. And I think it was really interesting for me to read because it's, I was able to understand my students who were coping with really, really hard times and trying to find creative outlets for them so that it could support them. I've always been really interested in psychology. So a lot of my books that I have on my shelf are like really hardcore <laughs> psychology research, which aren't the most easy to read. But um, this book also, it breaks it down into sections and it talks about different um, disorders. And then in the back, it actually talks about all the famous people that we know, the poets, the writers, the artists that all suffered from some sort of mental disorder. And then you think about what they achieved. It's a good example to give to your students, particularly if they're struggling with something, you know, even though these people struggled, look what they achieved. And then you can keep it on the positive side. But it's really interesting research in that one. It sounds like my books are really um, let's look at little tiny sections and yours are big <laughs> extensive <laughs> you've got you know reading the whole thing back to front so it's nice that we've got a bit of a contrast because that's true you know that that sums up my teaching in, in a lot of respects mine is let's find something that works and let's focus on that whereas yours is a bit more let's look at all the things behind it and let's really go into it and it, yeah. I think it's really interesting to look at the different approaches and how that affects different aspects of teaching and learning. I hadn't really thought that that is probably my approach as a teacher. I probably do think about, let's look at everything behind this to see how we get to the end product and the process. I think it's also because I'm a massive nerd, Hannah. I think you've overlooked the fact. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. Huge nerd. Um, I love research. I'm actually studying at the moment and um, I'm doing cooperative learning again. And I remember studying that 20 years ago and all of a sudden again, I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. Social learning is really interesting because I'm a massive nerd. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, so my last book that I'm going to recommend is The Gorilla Guide to Teach and again it's by Sue Cowley and until we did this I did not realise how many Sue Cowley books I've actually read which <laughs> you know I don't really look at the authors of things I just look at the title because you know I'm, I'm like that I take small sections but this one is another book that is written in small sections but it's got so much information it's quite thick and the section that I thought I'd just talk about is it's planning in the secondary school. So in this section, Sue Cowley is talking to another teacher and she asks that teacher questions, which should hopefully help in the planning of lessons for everybody. So it talks about, you know, the questions asked are, what planning documents does your school ask your department to produce? And then the teacher talks about what kind of things are expected of them. And then how do you go about day-to-day -day planning as an individual and as a department? So that's really interesting because it explains you know, this certain teacher rarely uses written plans unless Ofsted are in and talks about what their alternative is. But this book is chocker full of loads of things. It's got stuff like where to search for jobs, in what publications, 
information for parents, information for individual subjects. It's also got information about all the teaching unions and contact numbers and contact addresses for teacher training, um, teacher training resources. There's loads of stuff in here. So if you are either looking to do a PGCE or you're an experienced teacher, this book seems to have everything. It's even got examples of students um, exam results and things like that to, to help you so that book I think is pretty comprehensive that one is great for either reading all the way through or picking up little sections and focusing on what you need to look at what cool. about you um, there's one more book that I've got somewhere in my classroom. I haven't looked at it in a while, but it's called Lean Lesson Planning. It is actually a short one and a really thin one. <laughs> and it's all about taking shortcuts that are going to make your teaching more effective. Um, I know at one of the schools I worked at, pretty much every teacher had that on their desk. And it was just all about reclaiming your work-life balance. We're also going to recommend our guest later on the show, Rhiannon Packer, wrote a book called All Change, Best Practice for Educational Transitions. I haven't read it yet. I think it's only just come out. Um, but we know from speaking to her in the interview later in the show, we learned so much about shy children. And I imagine that this book's really fantastic. So um, if you look up her name and the book, you'll be able to find it. It's an educational um, book retailer. And there's lots of other titles there as well. I know on TeacherTap, if you've been using TeacherTap over the summer, they've been having vouchers for books online. So there's a, a link if you've done a certain number of TeacherTaps, you can get a 10% discount on educational books. So that'd be useful because obviously we don't have a huge amount of money to buy educational resources. But there's also lots of other places that you could do professional reading and you wouldn't have to necessarily download a book or read a physical book. I'm a physical book person, I know, and Hannah's an audio book person. <laughs> uh, what kind of educational blogs and things do you read, Hannah? I, a lot of the things that I look at is inspired by Twitter. So a lot of the people I follow on Twitter, the reason I follow them is because I think they produce really interesting resources and quite thought-provoking uh, tweets. And then looking at their blogs and looking at their perspectives of school I think that's really interesting because we all work in different environments we've all got different backgrounds we've got students that come from different backgrounds seeing how somebody else does something and how I could tweak it I find that really interesting so that's that's the kind of research that I like to do but obviously because I'm studying as well there's a lot of research that I need to do and the Education Endowment Fund is a really good free resource to find out. It, it tells you um, how effective certain interventions were, how much they cost um, and so it, it helps you work out. If you want to, for example, complete a project within school, there's stuff on there that tells you, you know, where to look for information, how the project was run that they've done, you know, whether it was successful or not, what, why was it successful, why was it not? So the Education Endowment Fund is something that I've been using quite a lot recently, um, and that, I find that really useful. What about you? Um, I was just going to say, I looked at, I've started looking at LinkedIn recently. I kind of ignored it for a long time. And um, I've noticed that I found links to really good and really interesting blog posts through that. And actually, a lot of the articles that I found for this podcast have been through LinkedIn, which I was surprised about. The other great place that I always look at is the Facebook groups that I'm a part of. So as a secondary art teacher, there's a secondary art and design, and then there's the NSEAD group 
which are fantastic and people share things all the time. My OneDrive is absolutely full <laughs> from all the resources that people have shared over lockdown. There's so much information and reading and articles that people have put links to. Um, I think everyone should take a look at Cleeps, particularly if you're a practical teacher. So if you teach science, PE, DT, art, having a look at those guidelines and looking at health and safety considerations, it's quite dry and it's not particularly interesting, but it's really, really important to protect yourself and make sure that you have risk assessments for your subjects and for all the activities that you do, but also just making sure that you're up to date with that kind of information. And there's some really great tips on Klebs as well as um, templates and things that you can download. So when you are reading for pleasure, Hannah, what books do you normally go for? I like crime. I like true crime, but I also like twisty turny types of books. I also like horror books and I like mystery books. So my favorite book of all time is The First 15 Lives of Harry August. Oh, that's a great book. And I forced everybody in my book club to read it. <laughs> I had to read it because I'm in the book club. <laughs> and it's really interesting. It's about a guy who lives a normal life and he dies. And then he wakes up again as a child and then lives his life again and is wondering why you know, wondering what's going on and then he dies. And then it works out that actually he's one of these rare people who can live a life and then die and then he'll be born again in the same kind of body back in the past. So it's all about how those special people change or ruin the world. Yeah, shape the world. Yeah. That was a really good book. It was a good recommendation, actually. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I have, because I'm such a nerd and I do read a lot of like hard-hitting books, I do like to mix it up with my reading for pleasure I love absolute trash novels um like chick lit sometimes <laughs> I have a bit of chick lit at home I've actually thrown out a whole bunch of or given donated to charity I should say um some of my chick lit I'm gonna say a lot of chick lit makes me mad though because I've read some books where I've gone why did I read this but I have to read it to the end I'm one of those people that I can't put it down I've got to finish it I'm like that but my um my husband's a really big Clive Cussler fan and he has like every Dirk Pitt adventure novel ever. So I actually started the series from the beginning and I've been reading them chronologically and they're great because they're like 007 and there's, there's romance, there's action, <laughs> it's a really far-fetched story, there's a little bit of history, um, but they're really good books. But they, you can really just turn your brain off and they're a great holiday read, I think. So I'm up to, I think I'm up to Dragon in the series. <laughs> but yeah, I love those. They're really my, I need to just sit down and turn my brain off. Um, but I've been trying to read a lot of the recommended The Bame read. My next book on my list to read is by Bernadine Evaristo. I hope that's how you say her name. Girl, Mother, Other. Um, because it was one of those... Um, uh, writers has been recommended and I also saw her on Portrait Artist of the Year and she was just like the most amazingly bubbly person I was like I've got to read her books now <laughs> so yeah I love books like those I wish I had time <laughs> I I am a cheater so I obviously download all mine as audiobooks and listen to them in the car um, but whenever I read so I was over the the lockdown I was really into The Handmaid's Tale so I got the first book and the second book Love those books. and I, I just could not get enough and then I was watching the series after I'd read the books and I was like 
why is it end on a cliffhanger like where's the next series and I can't get a hold of it so yeah that that really frustrated me but I, I like a good book that's got a conclusion because I think it takes me so long to read them that I just want it to be finished when I because I'm like you I can't I can't stop a book halfway through and if there's a cliffhanger on the end I'm like I can't get the other book I haven't got time have you ever thrown a book in the bin no I did once on a holiday <laughs> it was a chick lit book and I got to the end and I was like this is the worst book I've ever read it needs to be taken out of this world <laughs> and I threw it in the bin I was so angry because it was just oh the storyline was just awful <laughs> I'm, not I'm not surprised if you read that, that kind of story she inherited an antique store and then fell in love with her cousin. And, <laughs> oh, it was and it was all small country town love story. It was awful. So yes, it went in the bin. <laughs> I have a friend who, um, in her group of book club people, they choose different books to read, but they'll eventually read all of them. And once they've read them, they write their initials in the front of the book oh, and then pass idea. it on because then they know who to pass it on to next. And I thought that was a really great idea, particularly if you're like um, a bit short of cash or you're a new teacher. If you got together with other NQTs, you could like swap teaching books because you don't really need every single one on your shelf and then you can share it and keep the costs down a little bit, which I think is a good idea. I think that's a great idea. So in the description at the bottom of the podcast, I'll link a lot of the books that we've spoken about and some places where you can find information or resources. In Teaching and Learning, we're going to speak to Dr. Rhiannon Packer and Dr. Susan Davies, and they're going to explain all the things that you need to know about shy children. Susan, in five words, describe teaching to you. Okay, well, I love a quote, um, and because you asked me to do this in five words, this is the, the quote that I really like. Teaching is a work of heart. Oh, oh I love that. Isn't that nice? It is. That's, that's my philosophy, really, it is. And I think um, you can't teach unless you do it from your heart. Um, and I also love the words, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, because it's more than five words, but I love the words of, of Maya Angelou, um, where she says, um, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you make them feel. And again, I think that's really important as a teacher. I agree. I totally agree. How about you, Rhiannon? How would you describe teaching to you in five words? I, d I didn't have a phrase, so I've just got five words, um, or maybe six, because we don't ever follow rules, do we? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Invigorating, challenging, exhausting, satisfying, frustrating. Yes, all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> all of the same time. Yeah. Yes. It's really interesting how um, even though sometimes we throw some of the negative words in there, actually it's a joy to be frustrated sometimes and it's mm. a joy to be with these students. So, yeah, yes. I think that's really yes. true. In five words, describe the best type of student to teach, Susan. Okay, well, I would, I've got to say all students, obviously, because they're all with all their little quirks and what they bring to the table. Um, but it does help, I think, if children are switched on to learning. I'm doing more than five words here. So, so children that are switched on or learners that are switched on, uh, looking for ways to hook them in. Um, the learning must be relevant to them and also it's got to be pitched at their level. Um, it's also important that they're ready to learn socially and emotionally. And I think that, to me, is, is one of the top top things really they've got to be ready socially and emotionally to learn that's really interesting i don't think we always think about 
their emotional how their emotional state affects how they learn i think mm. it's mm. there's such a list of things that we have to cover that yeah. sometimes emotions yeah. right at yeah. the bottom isn't it exactly brilliant um rhiannon same question in five words describe the best type of student to teach uh, i, I haven't again i haven't done five words but i like students who uh, inquisitive, uh, engaged, you know, and eager to discuss with you or ask questions and to find out more, or maybe sometimes to challenge you to ask questions maybe you haven't thought about before. So it's more of a partnership really with the students so that you can learn together. Mm. Yeah, it's true. I learn so much from my students all the time. And yeah. I'm always shocked at how much you take away sometimes yeah. from what yeah, they're so. talking about or what they're making or what they're doing, or even sometimes their opinions. And you think, oh, I hadn't actually thought of things like that. And yeah. I think that partnership's really important. Mm, mm, definitely. Love that. Definitely. Great answers, ladies. <laughs> Not <laughs> I'm five enjoying words, this. Though. Yeah, we're going to be today. We're going to be uh, challenging pupils. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. We um we're very fluid with our five words, so <laughs> there's no real rules. <laughs> Susan, what's your classroom pet peeve? Okay, well I've already really I would say I'm, I'm lucky that working in um, in higher education I don't have this pet peeve anymore. But when I was teaching in school, my pet peeve was wet play, um, when the children would be in all day and you look out out the window and it was pouring with rain. Um, and I think my philosophy is that really there shouldn't be such a thing as wet play or, or bad weather. The children should be outside and have the opportunities to go outside all the time. So I subscribe to the forest school ideal of, of there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes. So we should be sending oh. out whatever the weather really. I love that. Yeah. I um we I in my classroom I spend a lot of time hanging up wet blazers blazers on my radiator because I think um, we don't do wet play very often no. at our school at no. all so um yeah it's a lot of well this is how we dry things guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> same question to you Rhiannon what is your classroom pet peeve um well. As a sec I didn't have one as a secondary school teacher and I used to teach language so my classrooms were always very noisy and I like chats in my purposeful chat in my classroom. Um, in at university my pet peeve is people on their phones or on their laptops when when I'm talking. Yeah. Because I know as um, high school teachers or secondary teachers, um, students don't understand how disengaging it is when you're looking at the top of heads rather mm. than looking into people's eyes when you're talking to them and you can't yeah. actually see if they're taking in the yeah. information at all. What I do now is what I used to do in secondary school is go to the back of the classroom when I'm talking and then I can see exactly what people are doing. <laughs> yeah. That's a great tip. Very, yeah. very sneaky, I like that. <laughs> Um, so this is a really important question. So what do you do to look after your mental health or unwind at the end of a difficult day, mm -hmm. Susan? Yeah, I think this is really important. I think one of the things that teachers do is they concentrate on their pupils' well-being and mental health and they don't concentrate on their on their own. They, they, they give us. Um, so it's, it's that idea that you've got to spend some time um, looking after your mental health. And I look after my mental health by running. Um, I enjoy running. Um, I'm a member of um, Liz Wherry runners in Newport hello big up to use very runners and um, I also sell things on eBay I've got a bit of an eBay um, 
fetish at the moment so I sell lots of things on eBay and I find that uh, very um, actually quite relaxing sitting down and, and putting stuff on eBay so that's how I do it, do it at the moment. Rhiannon what do you do to look after your mental health or unwind at the end of a really tough day? Well like many people I work full-time and have a busy family life um, but I enjoy lots of things like baking and uh, reading and sewing Probably baking more because that's appreciated by the family <laughs> more. <laughs> so I'm into making sourdough at the moment. So I've got a starter in the in the fridge, and I'm making bread probably three times a week. Amazing! Wow. I love mm. making bread. Mm. It's what there's nothing better than the smell of baking bread in your house. It is so, amazing. It just gets demolished too quickly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that is the problem when you make your own bread. It doesn't last at all. <laughs> not good for the line either. <laughs> What's one thing you'd like to change about education, Susan? I'd like to, I think that I'd like more opportunities for holistic learning um, and especially learning outdoors because that's one of my passions. Um, I think you sh we should be giving children much more space and freedom to learn at their own pace. And also, I think it's really important to factor in thinking time. I think that's one of the things that we don't do. We ask children questions and we don't give them enough time to, to formulate answers. We expect them to answer, answer us straight away. So that would be the thing that I would change. Um, giving them children, giving them free, more freedom um, for independent learning and, and more thinking time. I think that's really important. I'm definitely the kind of person, if you put me on the spot and ask me a question, I go completely blank. Mm. I'm like, uh, mm. uh, uh, and I take a long time to process information. Yeah. So yeah. I know I'm one of those people. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's that processing time and thinking time, which we don't, we, we, we don't give in a, bit, in a busy day. But I think we need to, to do that more. And children need to have that uh, opportunity to have that space. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and what would you like to see changed about education? Well, I think my answer in one way is very similar to Sue's, but I'm, I'm coming from more of a secondary school perspective. Um, so I believe that um, we need to address the balance between teaching and exams and assessments, um, because I think there's too much of a focus on passing the exam um, which has resulted in a very uh, narrow way of looking at teaching in terms of uh, just imparting information that students are expected to regurgitate then in the, in the examination process. Um, and as a consequence, I think there's too much focus on that surface learning. So you just um, take in that information and then regurgitate it at a later date or slightly later date, but you don't have time to reprocess what you've learnt. Um, so you haven't got opportunity for that deep learning where you have your learning in maybe a wider context and then being able to apply and transfer that information in a more holistic way. I think we're quite, you know, teachers have been forced really through the examination system just to focus on content driven for the exam rather than looking at the discipline as a whole and how that um, how that relates to you as an individual and how you can apply that knowledge in a wider context. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, the subject is in a box, but actually mm. subjects aren't in boxes. They overlap with each other, but we don't yeah. encourage students or um, pupils to actually see that connection always. Maybe with the new curriculum, with Donaldson's new curriculum, that opportunity will be available. But I think, you know, we've got to move, move from that mindset because teachers have been taught to teach in that way and we need to sort of maybe move away from that. Um, and yeah, it can be quite tricky. 
Yeah, sometimes it's, it's, it is tricky. And sometimes they even have to flag it when I'm in a lesson and go, we are going to do something transferable today. So when we're talking about this in this subject, <laughs> it also means this in another subject and you could hear it here and you could use it here. And yeah, I think that's really important, those transferable skills, because they're also the things that employers are looking for when students go beyond their formal yeah, education. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that people need to be aware that it's more than the, that a subject is more than the assessment. So, you know, like at teaching at university, sometimes students are more focused on what they need to know for the assessments, that they don't realise the value of the content of the module and how that might relate, you know, or they might be able to apply that information late, at a later date when maybe they're working. You know, and they think, oh, we did that. You know, I covered that. Or I have an understanding of that from X, Y and Z module. I think that's the yeah. pitfall, isn't it, of standardised tests? Because if you've got a mm. test, those schools who want to compete and be top of the league tables or at least, you know, not be at the bottom are going to have to teach to the test. Whereas if you remove those standardised tests, you get a much more well-rounded education because there's no pressure there. But then obviously... Mm. The DfE might argue that there's then no accountability for schools to improve, which I think as teachers, that trust has just totally been eradicated, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And it's a, it's a balance because you do need a benchmark in order to have a, uh, have a standard, don't you? But you also need to be able to look at that wider picture. So I think there's a, there's a tension there, but I think it's gone too far one way and it needs to be readdressed and brought, brought back. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. quite a few interesting conversations that we've had for this section of the podcast where lots of people have said exactly the same thing. It's not that they don't like standardised tests or formal assessments. It's that it needs to be realigned and re-looked at and reimagined so that it's fit for purpose because at the moment it's causing a lot of stress with students and staff, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's it's not a blame. You know, teachers are doing what they've been told to do and what they've been trained to do, but I think there needs to be some sort of it needs to be readdressed somewhat and that balance needs to be it needs to be more balanced at the moment it's quite imbalanced and and students therefore are that's the way they operate they're just looking at that their end goal is the assessments and it's quite narrow mm. narrow really i suppose when you see them in further education they're so entrenched in that what do i need to know for the test that when they get to you that's all they're interested in like you said they just want to know what to revise for and teachers have scaffold that so much because they have to that that independent learning isn't there because they they don't know how to do it so therefore you have to scaffold you you then have to scaffold it whereas you know when i was at university we were just given the assessments i don't know when but we're told to get on with it we weren't giving any mm. given any scaffolding at all yeah i think that goes back to my point about this idea if we work with younger children to be more independent thinkers and to do things and to give them that autonomy I think that would then transfer on into GCSEs A-levels um, so that, that's where I think that we have that that would be joining up with your your ideas there Rihanna. Uh, yeah, no, yeah it's not just one part of education it's the whole yeah. progress mm. the progression now is yeah. all the same and mm. yeah it goes right back from primary all the way through we have a primary age child mm. and the amount of testing that he has to do we're absolutely shocked at it's mm. Mm. and then it's the things that he's tested he, the things he's tested on we're always really surprised at because he's quite a good reader because he's in a house full of teachers <laughs> and he's um very confident at reading but 
when he can recognise words visually, he still is told he has to sound them out and he gets so frustrated because it's like, why? I know what it says. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you're being tested on how well you can sound it out as well as how you read it. And then in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't understand why we're doing this. Yeah. I think think it's also, we've got to be so careful that we're not taking away the the pleasure of reading. That's right. Itself is a pleasure and it shouldn't, you know, if we're test over testing them in reading, then that that pleasure won't be there. Especially, especially with boys, not, not always, but boys tend to Mm. switch off more. And then we see it in high school, uh, in secondary school. So we'll move on to the questions specifically geared towards your specialism, which is looking at shy children, which is going to be really useful. So our first question is, tell us about your experiences in education. Okay. Um, Well, from my experience, my experience in education was that I was a shy child myself. Thus, I I can sympathise with children who are shy learners. Um, I was somebody that didn't reach my potential in education. I, I left school when I was 16. And I was just glad to, to get to get out of school. Didn't like school. Um, and I've done all my, my learning since since having left. I, I did my degree with the Open University. And I went on to do my master's with the Open University. And I've just, um, I did my doctorate as well. So I wasn't somebody that, that wasn't capable in school. It's just that school didn't, didn't suit me as a, as a, as a, a quiet child, really. Um, and I think that, um, that teachers possibly don't, don't understand the importance of engaging with shy children. Um, as I said, I was, I was one of them. Um, um, I was quiet. I, I used to get, I used to have a lot of grief from other children as well, which wasn't great. And, um, there wasn't the awareness in my in my day when I was in school that there is now. I think teachers do have a better understanding, but again, it's having that time to engage with a shy, a shy quiet child because by their very nature, they're the ones that get on. They don't cause you any trouble, so therefore you don't you don't necessarily engage with them. Why why would you if, if they're just getting on with their work and they're 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 not causing any 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 issues? So I think that's the thing that um, I I look at in my research and I've looked at. I think it's so important that teachers are aware of of of, quiet, the quiet, of their quiet children, um, and if we look at research, really you're looking at one in sort of one to three children in each class is a quiet child, um, and it's so interesting because I've spoken to a lot of head teachers. Um, I had a head teacher a, a while ago who said to me, "Well, I, I don't have any quiet children in my school." Well, yes, you do. Um, so I think that it's 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 interesting how they are marginalised, and um, my research is hopefully looking at how we how we first of all identify them and then how we help them. That's brilliant. Uh, Rhiannon, what um, what about your experiences in education? Well, um, I went to a Welsh medium school, so I speak Welsh fluently, and my my class was uh, very small, so there were seventeen in my primary class. Um, and I think I found that very helpful because I'm quite a quiet person as well. Um, and when I went to secondary school, I had some really good teachers. And my most inspiring teacher was my Welsh teacher. Probably that's why I became a Welsh teacher as well. Um, she never raised her voice. She never shouted. And she was generally interested in in you as a person. And I, I, I think that supported me a lot Um and um, it was quite um, emotional for me years later when I was a Welsh teacher actually to meet her and tell her that she had inspired me in, in that way. Um, she was very supportive and she appreciated that um, people 
took their time to, to speak and were maybe a bit quieter. And, you know, I think having a teacher like that um, can really help you. And if you don't have somebody mm. like that, you can, you can mm. find it difficult. And as a teacher myself, I was felt that um, building meaningful relationships with, with pupils was really important, even more than the teaching, because if, if, you've, you've, if you've got a pupil on board with you, then you can teach them. If you're not, if they don't think you're interested in them, then it's, it can be really difficult to engage them on, on any level. Absolutely. I mean, that must be the thing that when you move to a new job or a different school or if you're starting out teaching, that has got to be the first thing you've got to build up really quickly to get them on board and get them, you know, because mm-hmm. they're not going to learn otherwise unless they feel some kind mm-hmm. of responsibility or mm-hmm. relationship there. They, they don't learn as effectively. Mm. Yeah, and the feeling that, um, that that you want to know them, that you're interested in them as people, rather than in in them sitting down and listening to you, it's a, it's a yeah, it can be a challenge, particularly with teenagers. You know, sometimes they've got lots of other things going on, and they're not particularly interested in sitting at you know in the classroom listening to you. But yeah, I totally agree. So, what inspired you both to research into different into differentiating for shy children? Well, again, as I said, um, from partly from my experiences, but also my experiences my, with, with um, my children, my, my youngest daughter is, is quiet. And what used to happen was um, she was quiet. She used to get on with the work. She, she's a bright, bright girl. Um, and she always, in the classroom, she was always sat next to the more challenging boys. Um, so I had to go in and say to the teacher, um, whilst I understand your strategy, because her obviously her calmness calmed them down, um, it wasn't very good for her because she used to get anxious and uh, upset about having to sit on the table with uh, very rowdy boys. Um, so I think, again, it's that understanding. Uh, I wanted to make sure that practitioners were aware of, of just issues like that, whereas a quiet child probably wouldn't even t- even tell you, wouldn't even vocalise to you as the teacher that they were having issues. Um, so therefore, you don't think they've got an issue. So it's giving them voice. I think that was my that was my mission really when I was doing this research was making sure that those quiet children, those anxious children who worried about things had a voice. And I think especially at the moment, uh, post COVID, um, the children who are like that are going to be worrying even more. And maybe some of the children who perhaps weren't anxious before are now anxious because of the situation. Because in fairness, we're anxious as adults, aren't we? Um, about mm. what's going to happen and how things are going to pan out and the new the new normal, if you like. So um, you can imagine uh, quiet, shy and anxious children. To them, they they overthink, they're, they're, they are overthinkers. Therefore, this whole situation could be potentially very, very distressing for them. So again, we need to make sure that we're... Um, we're looking at how we support them in relation to to the, the kind of the new normal, if you like. Brilliant. And Brianna? Well, I met with Sue in work and we started chatting about Sue's what Sue was doing. And that resonated with me because um, I specialise now in additional learning needs or special educational needs, as it's in England. Um, and having taught children with special educational needs, particularly those with, say, um, a learning difficulty such as dyslexia, um, I could see that maybe because they're acutely aware of their difficulties in relation to others, that they become more reserved, more quiet, more anxious um, about what they're doing and how they're performing. Um, and so I was quite interested in working with Sue um, in, in exploring that further. 
And I think also as well, as Rhiannon said, we're both quiet, we're both quiet people and, that, um, you know, we get on really well together. And I think that um, it's it's great as a quiet person to to work with other quiet people because they appreciate how you work. They see it from your point of view. Um, and that's that's another thing that I think is really important. Um, and I also think it's really important for teachers to make sure that um, when they they're, they, they're grouping children in school that they look at the personalities in groups and also they mix things up often as well so that the the, the quiet children get to to mix with a range of different children but also you keeping an eye on on the kind of the personalities within those groups yeah i think that's really important i'm uh, quite an outgoing person so i find this is one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you about this because i, I find it really difficult to to relate I can imagine what it must be like for a shy child mm. in a classroom mm. but mm. to find strategies and things like that to mm. support mm. that child is really mm. important mm. and obviously empathizing with that um, that student however they kind of present themselves mm. so what yes. do you think that yes. impact of shyness is on the students learning in the classroom well I think that they, they quite often don't reach their, their potential but but do you want me to say a little a little bit about how you how you recognize these children in the in the, in the classroom would that yes, be, that'd be brilliant um, okay so so first of all if you if you're if you're a teacher and you're thinking oh is that is that child a quiet child I mean again you may not have noticed them because by their very nature they, they don't really put themselves above any any parapets um, but often in, in conversations they produce little or, or not a lot of uh, voluntary speech. Um, they follow directions. They're very, very good at following directions. They'll do exactly what you tell them, um, but often they don't respond verbally, so they'll just act rather than say. Um, sometimes they turn away when you, you speak to them. Um, they often watch other children but don't join in with activities. Um, sometimes they avoid eye contact because, as Rhiannon said, some of them may be on the, um, the, the autistic spectrum or they might have, have issues with, with making eye contact. Um, also, they're often in their own little world. I mean, this is one of the things that I used to, to be. I know when I was in school, I, I'd go off in my mind and I'd be off <laughs> for a long time thinking about all various different things because quite often shy children are overthinkers. They think about things. So they're often in their own little world. Um, they also like to be on their own because I think one of the things we do as teachers is we try and make everybody join in with things. And quite often, children who are shy and quiet like working on their own. And there's not a problem with that. But we as teachers have a real problem with children working on their own for some reason. And I'm, I'm gu as guilty of, as it, of this as the next person. Um, so they like to be on their own. They like to spend time, for example, in the book corner, which is, is perfectly fine. Um, so they don't have to join in with things. Um, sometimes they zone out. So they might be in a group and you think they're in, they're engaging, but they're, they're zoned out. Um, they're softly spoken. Um, and also they, they, they often don't volunteer for things. They don't put themselves forward unless you say to them, would you like to do this? And then quite often they'll do it because, again, they quite like <clears> to comply. They like to, um, to do things and to be a part of things. Um, so I think it's important to, to look for those look for those signs in, in, in our quieter students. And again, as I said, they don't always have to be working in groups because sometimes they find that really, really difficult. So that's the main thing I'd like to get across, really. That sounds great. It's made me really identify. I can, I can think exactly of who in my classes mm, <laughs> now mm. fits that kind of criteria. Yeah. So yeah. hopefully we can talk about some things and some strategies yes, that some could help them. Yeah, for them, yeah. yeah, to help them, yeah. And I think in those busy classrooms, you, you know, as a teacher, you've got a lot going on as well. You've got, you can have some really demanding children who've got lots of questions who are asked all the time. And those 
those children can be overlooked because they're they're easy. They're doing what you've asked them to do. They're you know mm. they seem engaged in their tasks, um, and you're 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 being distracted by other children who you know mm. also mm. have needs as well. I mean, it's about balancing that. Um, and mm. it can be easy sometimes to overlook those children because mm. there's so much going on elsewhere. Definitely. Yeah. I definitely mm. agree with that. What strategies could staff in the classroom use to support shy students? First of all, find out what the, what your shy children are interested in. Um, get them to bring in pictures from home or, or think, talk about their hobbies. Um, and again, no pressure, because one of the things they, they probably don't like doing is talking in front of a group, a big, large groups. So maybe in smaller groups. Um, as I said before, mix up the children in the classroom regularly and try out different combinations of groups. Because what you might find is that um, they might then make friends with somebody who they hadn't even come across before. Uh, when I was doing my research on um, shy children, it was so interesting. In one of the schools, um, one little boy, shy boy, was somebody that the, the children hardly even knew. They, some of the children didn't even know what his name was, and he was in the in the classroom with them. Um, so it, it wasn't until the special me time research that that they actually got to got to know him. Um, Capitalise on their strengths. That's an easy one. So if they're very good at a particular subject, for example, maths, then get them to to buddy up with a child who perhaps isn't isn't as good as maths, so they can explain things and they'll explain it in, a, in their quiet way, which which helps a lot of children. Um, arrange desks or seats um, so that they're grouped with with different children again. Um, and also get to know the children in your class who are good at including others. So the, the, the children who are the, the inclusive children. So get to get them to know, get them to sort of buddy up. Um, teach the children how to join in with activities. So you might need to, to sort of um, give them a little bit of encouragement there. Um, because quite often they'll try to join in, but they don't have the skills and strategies that the more vocal children have. So you need to give them a little bit of support. So things like um, friendship stops in the playground and some of the strategies um, like that are just are just fantastic for shy children because it gives them a way in. So it's basically giving those children a way into those big rowdy groups or the, the more the, the groups with the more vocal children if they want to. Because again, sometimes it might be they might just have one one special friend and that might be perfectly perfectly acceptable to them um, so give them tasks they like to be classroom monitors or um, pen monitors or what, whatever your um, whatever your your strategy is for, for that within your classroom um, they also like to do things like tidy up uh, um, rub, you know rub off the whiteboard that type of thing rub stuff off the whiteboard um, take time to check in with them um, engage them in conversations um, Try to avoid placing them in situations that might be stressful for them or embarrassing. Um, so again, it's knowing your, your your children, I think, is really, really important. Make sure your classroom is inclusive and, and uh, non-bullying, non-threatening. So you call out any incidents where children are, um, you know, ha- have any issues with any of the, any of the children, really. Uh, maintain contact with the parents and one of the things you'll probably find is that um, I mean obviously not always but um, often a shy child will have a shy parent and um, sometimes those parents don't want to engage with with staff at the end of the day so uh, that's another thing you might want to have a little look at Um, and keep in mind um, that 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 shy children you know need to be involved in things as much as the 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 non-shy and the more vocal children I think that's really interesting. One of the things that you said that I think we need to make time for in school is teaching children how to 
join in or teaching them social skills so that mm. they understand how to include everybody or mm. understand mm. how to maybe uh, approach a situation in, in a different mm. way because mm. I don't think we mm. do that enough. No, no. This is what I said at the beginning, the importance of that social and emotional development. And if you're looking at schools in, in Finland, in the Scandinavian countries, they spend a lot of time doing that. So when the children are seven, seven, eight years of, of age, they're so much more advanced educationally than our children because they've spent those early years doing that exact thing, socialising them and getting them to, 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 to be part of society in a much more robust way than, than we do. Uh, we're lucky in Wales that we've got our foundation phase where we, we put a lot of emphasis on that. I, I'm not quite so sure in England, you know, because you have your testing now at a very much younger age than we do. So I do worry that that's something that's 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 been brushed aside. And it's so, so important, that early socialisation and developing and, and getting those skills um, embedded. Often in our education system, it seems like it's a bolt on. So it'll be things like at younger ages, yeah. we'll say, let's include yeah. those children by recommending they go and join beavers or scouts mm. or something like mm. that that's mm. outside of the classroom. But actually, we need it in the classroom in the school it needs to kind of be part of the school culture yes, not just yes. something that absolutely. we add on absolutely yeah. and again it, it very much depends on the parents so if parents encourage their children to widely go out to, to groups outside school but again if you have a, a shy parent who perhaps maybe has just moved to a, a new area doesn't know many other parents finds it again that threatening of, of getting to know other parents then that child will, won't have that many opportunities or have lesser opportunities outside school. So that's why it's so important for us to ensure that, 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 that school is providing them um, and also uh, reaching out to, to the, the parent to, for some support if they need it. And especially when you get to kind of secondary school, I, I feel like it's sometimes we've missed a trick or missed an opportunity to get that into the core school day because yeah, once they yeah. get to secondary school they're already you know an established mm. person aren't they? they've got their own personality exactly. and it's exactly. really difficult yeah. to make a positive change mm. with somebody mm. who's already mm. kind of set in you know yeah. the way they are yeah. yeah and also the op the opportunities in secondary school are far fewer for that social and emotional development get, getting to know learners because as a secondary school teacher you're probably teaching five classes of 30 children every day uh, so you're seeing, what, 150 children every day, with each with different personalities. You've got maybe an hour to get to know them. So those opportunities are few and far between. But I think it is, it is important to try and develop that relationship over a period of time. Um, just by maybe acknowledging that, that you know, so greeting that child, saying hello, um, maybe commenting something positive about them that you've noticed. Um, I, I agree with Sue about mixing groups together, looking at you know personalities and how they work together in groups. I mean, I've done that at university. Goes down like a lead balloon at the beginning when you're mm -hmm. after their friendship mm -hmm. group. Yeah, they, they, they don't like out, outside their friendship not, groups, do they? Not, but on you know when they come out of it the other side, 
actually it strengthens a cohort so much um, because they can depend on each other it builds relationships it develops confidence and you know some of the nicest end of term do's that we've had are as a result of that mixing mm, group mm. yeah definitely think? definitely i think probably that would that would be my, my number one strategy because it's so so important and it, it gives children so many life skills to mix with other people not just their friend their friends um, and i think yeah. also the more you do it within your classroom the more they'll get used to it and they won't question it they won't say oh i want to work with my friend i want to you know it's, it's just a thing every day we, we, we're working with different people and it's such a skill it's such a it's such a life skill and you can build that up you know through to secondary school through to university there are still skills that you know we're still learning aren't we we never stop learning uh, yeah, we never stop changing so, you know, I think there's a value in, there's a value in that. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. And it comes down to that teacher-student relationship, that it's a positive one. Yeah. Absolutely. Not always easily done, but that you try. Yeah. You try yes, good luck, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there evidence to suggest that there are triggers for shyness or is it something that we've all got within us? Well, I think I think it's some time, and you said, Hannah, that you're outgoing, and I think there there, there are probably times in your life when you feel a bit shy about something. Definitely. So I think it's it is definitely an innate um, thing within us, but for some reason, some children are more suffer more with it than others. Whether it's a personality, whether it's how they're they're socialised or within the family. Who knows? It might be. It could be the where you where you are in your family. I mean, one of the one of the um, children I've, I've worked with in in one of my studies was um, the youngest child of seven, and his older siblings used to speak for him, used to do everything for him. He was treated very much like a baby. And sometimes, if a child is small as well, children treat them like they in a, in an early years setting. They treat them like babies. So in a way, they they're conforming to that that sort of ideal that the, ch- the other children give give to them so this little boy was treated like a baby by his, his siblings and by the ch- other children in the nursery um but he was a he was an elective mute he didn't speak at all he, he didn't didn't say a word and when he was part of the, the special me time program which i'll tell you about, about in a moment at the end of the six-week program he was he was speaking and he was able to ask the caretaker for a, a, a ball that had been thrown over a wall um it, he asked the caretaker, "Could you? Could I have my ball back?" And the caretaker nearly nearly fainted because this child didn't speak a single word. So I think again, it's 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 giving children that confidence. But um, shyness can can be as a result of many many things. And um, sometimes, and children are very receptive. Sometimes children might hear something if somebody says something to them, or you know, don't like what you're wearing, or and that can make them shy or make them self conscious. So. It's a variety of things, and I don't know um, what the reasons for it are. Um, there's been a lot of research on shyness, and if people are interested in looking at looking it up, um, I would recommend um, Ray Crozier from Cardiff University, uh, Professor Ray Crozier, who's written a lot about shyness, and also um, somebody called Susan Kane. Um, she's done a TED talk and she's written two books about about being a quiet person herself and they're really really interesting I know you've read her book recently Rhiannon haven't you and you're yeah, interested yeah. in that so um 
so yeah, I mean, there's plenty of, of written research about being shy and the reasons for being shy. So if people are interested, then I would direct them to to, to that. Also, some celebrities are shy as well. Um, do you know Rod Gilbert in England? He's a, a Welsh comedian, but yeah, you come across Rod. I mean, he he did a really interesting documentary about being a shy person himself even though he plays to to stadiums of however many people um he said he doesn't mind doing that because he's removed from it whereas if he has to go into a, a shop or into a, a restaurant he's, he's he can be quite shy uh, and also he doesn't like to be people to um sort of come up to him in the street sort of thing as a, as a celebrity so there's lots of shy shy celebrities so there's there's quite there's quite a lot of people out there who are shy. Oh, I think it's important to recognise that some people are quite happy being shy, yes, yeah, and, and other people are, are not happy. And I think it's about when when it's a problem that it needs to be addressed. You know, when it's when it's impacting. I'm just thinking of a correlation maybe with some people who have dyslexia for some people it's not a problem and they're quite proud of the fact that they have this condition because it enables them in other ways um, but for other people it can be debilitating and I think shyness is is the same thing for some people it's not a problem they're quite happy that's who they are and they're quite happy with that but for other people they can find it quite debilitating and it's those people that we need to be trying to support and to help. Mm -hmm. What would you say to a teacher because I think this is the one of this is one of the pieces of feedback that teachers give at parent teacher evenings all the time to shy children is oh they're doing really great they're really engaged they're doing everything they should be Mm -hmm. I just want them to talk a bit more in class Mm -hmm. rather than having that dialogue with parents what dialogue should we be having? What to make sure that they that they they talk more in the classroom? I don't think it's about that. I think it's about just making sure they're um, making the progress they should. Because I yeah, know I'm I guilty think, of it too. Just going. Yeah, I, I, well, exactly. I think they talked more. <laughs> exactly. I think if you look at research, research says that uh, teachers often assume that, that that shy children are less intelligent than than their peers yeah. simply because they don't they don't say anything. Um, so really, it's looking at how we. Um, we look at those behaviours and sometimes shy children can be socially awkward, which is seen as less attractive for other children to play with them. Um, so it's, it's, it's looking at how we, we include them really and, and are just, just sort of aware of them. I think being aware is, is probably the, 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 main, the main strategy. Knowing, and, uh, knowing your quiet children and knowing that you need to put something in place to support them. To, to help them to speak, to help them to facilitate that 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 sort of um, engagement. So it's about adapting our own practices and and maybe thinking about ways in which those children can voice their opinions or give their answers in in maybe a different way to perhaps putting them on the spot and asking them to mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you could do things like think pair share uh, as an exercise or maybe mm-hmm. that they write mm-hmm. down their answers rather than verbalising them. Or yeah. just, you know, providing different activities. So you're getting the same feedback, but maybe in a slightly different way. I mean, they could mm. record themselves and then, mm. you know, mm. um, so that the teacher can listen to it. There's, you know, there's lots of different ways in, in which you can do it. But I think it's about being sensitive to that need and maybe um, maybe thinking about different ways in which you can get the feedback you want. Well, I think, again, it's, it's really important that we get children to, to talk about their feelings and talk about how they feel um, and just be there to support them, really. 
Um, and also, as, as, as Rihanna has said, it's, it's, not a, it's not a problem being shy. It's not a problem being quiet. Um, and the, the world, yes, it's a big noisy world, but, but quieter children have got a place and they've got as much right in that world as, as the more sort of vocal children. So, yeah, it's not, it's not something that's, that's an issue or a problem. It's just that's just how, how some children are. And that's, that's, it's, accept, it's accepting that. Um, and, and also not just accepting it, looking at the, the, the kind of the benefits and, and celebrating the fact that the quiet children are deeper thinkers um, or, or can be deeper thinkers. They can um, contribute a lot to um, the classroom and a lot to society. And it's just the way that society is. It, we, we celebrate the, the kind of the, the, the extroverts often rather than the, the more introverted uh, children. But I think as well, though, if it, if it is a problem that maybe parents, you know, if it's a problem for the child that maybe parents provide opportunities to scaffold ways for their chi- for their child to overcome shyness. So if it is a problem, that rather than just throwing the child into a situation that maybe you scaffold that, I mean, teachers can do the same, scaffold that opportunity so that they take one one step at a time um, in trying to overcome if it you know if it is a difficulty for them or it's, if it's causing them anxiety. Mm. Definitely agree with that. I think if you do it that way, you end up with a with a child who feels more confident about their interactions. Mm. Whereas if you yeah. just throw them yeah. in and go yeah. deal with it. Yeah. They end yeah. up. Yeah. It sometimes can yeah. make them yeah. regress. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I think th- this is where my my uh, the research that we're doing comes into comes into its own really because um, one of the things that um, that Professor Ray Crozier said was that shy children need interventions in the classroom. Um, you, you can't just let them get on with it. Um, so one of the things that, that, that we did in the research was we, we looked to see if we could um, prove that hypothesis, the fact that, that the interventions made a difference. And it, it, actually, it actually does. You, you do need to do something. Um, yeah. So that was, that was the importance of the research that we did was the fact that we found out that by putting an intervention in place, just a short intervention, the intervention was six weeks, it really, really made a difference to the, the, the shy children. What kind of interventions did you put in place then for that student? Okay, so I'll tell you. Li- I'll tell you a little bit about about the research project. Okay, so it's basically it was based on the use of a targeted program called Special Me Time. Um, we also did another one called Quality Me Time for the older children. So the Special Me Time was for younger children. It was our foundation phase, so we're looking at three to seven, um, and. It was basically a, a six-week intervention, one session per week. We took a baseline at the beginning of the of the research, um, and that was based on Welsh Government Foundation phase, um, personal personal social development, well-being, and cultural diversity strand. So we took a baseline to find out where the children were. Um, we then did the six-week intervention, which is one one taught session or facilitated session per week on a social emotional theme, and then we took a baseline at the end. So we looked at a six-week intervention. Um, we had various um, nurseries and early years settings involved. Um, we provided a training course. So there was a training course and there was a booklet of materials. So practitioners just um, had, the, had the training and they had all the materials. So they didn't have to go off and find anything. And uh, I designed the, the activities specifically to be as easy as possible. Um, so there were things like... Um, jam sandwich tea party so the children um, went off and made jam sandwiches and then shared them with the other children easy um 
quietly, another one was called quietly appreciating beautiful things. Because again, quiet children like calm, they like peace, they like, like, so that it was looking at a, a beautiful shell or something. And while you facilitated it, we made the sessions as special as we possibly could. That's why it was called special me time. Um, and the children would sit there in a small group but with lovely music. I mean, I think some of the teachers, we, we all said as teachers, we'd like to have this, we'd like to do this programme. So we had beautiful, we had some, maybe some nice um, a, a scented candle, that sort of thing. So it made it really, really special for the children. Um, and that was one of the one of them. Um, very small groups, so six, six children maximum in the group. Um, and it was delivered all, all the, the first round of the, the study, we delivered it to the 42 children across the, the different schools. So targeted small groups, handbook given to practitioners, and then the, the special activities. And these were some of the these were some of the results from the practitioners. So the practitioners were saying things like, we loved undertaking the, the special me-time activities. The sessions were really special. It gave the children time to chat with each other and staff. Um, they were very engaged and enthusiastic. Um, evidence from the baseline scores at the beginning of the programme at the end showed that every child had become more confident and was becoming more, more curious to develop and explore. They were more able to work cooperatively rather than on their own. So we found that the sessions helped them to work in a, in a, a little small group. And it was really interesting because quite often the children, although they were all quiet children, quite often they weren't in friendship group at all. And the special me time, the, 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 the kind of each week where they work together, they then transferred those friendships outside into the classroom. And it's interesting that they weren't friends before a lot of the children, even though they were all very quiet children and all exactly the same. Um, so some of the things that my students said, um, and these were really interesting, because I, I got my, my PGCE students to carry out um, a lot of the research. Um, one, of my, one of my students, we'll call him Jason, we'll call him Jason, for, but he'll probably know who I'm talking about. And he said this, and this is really interesting. He said, I'm an extrovert and I never realised that quiet children can really struggle in the classroom. I'm very loud. And he was very loud. He was a, a typical, I'd say, Welsh rugby boy. I'm not, I'm not being stereotypical, but he, you know, he, he was into rugby. He didn't think about his own um, emotional literacy or his own social and emotional development. Um, I'm very loud and I just did not get it and he didn't get it and it was really interesting at the beginning he he I said to him oh Jason you'd be really good to come on this because I knew he'd be really good oh I'm not interested in anything like that he said to me I, I'm only interested in teaching reading and maths or in English and maths he wasn't interested in any of the social and emotional side of things um, but he came onto the program and he completely changed his mind and um, so he said I just didn't get it how some children are really shy he just didn't have a have a clue um, doing this special me time research has opened my eyes to this and I know I will be a more sensitive and knowledgeable teacher as a result of it. Um, so that was one of the things um, the children looked forward to their special me time. They really gelled as a group and previously they were just, just quiet children. That was an interesting one for one of my students who were pretty much on their own in the classroom. So it gave them the opportunity to make friends within the small group. Um, so I think um, it was really worthwhile. Um, so some of the findings from the research were that it seems to really benefit boys for some reason. And um, we had lots of really good results. And I'll, I'll just very quickly tell you about some of the, the baseline scores. It also seemed to benefit children with English as an additional language. Again, that was a, that was a finding that we didn't have any idea when we started. Um, and it helps the children to make friends within the group. And then the, the confidence built in that group transfers out to the wider classroom. Um, so we did pr 
um, prove the hypothesis of Crozier um, et al. that small intervention groups really work for quiet, shy and anxious children. Um, practitioners like the focus on the calm as well. So a lot of the practitioners said they would carry on the calm activities with the other children because they really they could see how the calmness in the classroom made a real difference. Um, the children were able to leave the sessions from the quiet. The quiet children, once they'd done these activities, they were able to talk about their experiences in the wider group. Um, it gave them a lot of pride and it gave them something to talk to about, to talk to the other children about. Um, and also, it was also important to, to look at the fact that sometimes the quieter girls really overthought things and they really worried about things. They worried about getting things right. Um, and one of the things that we, we made sure we did with the children was say to them, look, there's no right or wrong within the special me time. You can say something and if it's wrong, it doesn't matter. Um, and that really, that really made a difference as well. Because again, sometimes quiet children can worry about what they, what they say and, what they're, and how they're engaging with others. But um, as I said, some of the baselines were, were incredible. We had variances, for example, in one nursery, we had children who had a baseline of 21, uh, which was quite a low baseline. Um, and then the final baseline was 36, so they'd gained 15. Wow. Um, I had another child who had gained um, 27 points on the, on the baseline scores. Um, so we had real improvements. Um, one of the biggest improvements was with a little girl, a little looked after child, and she had a baseline score of 10, and her final baseline score was 47. Wow. So we had huge gains from the special me time. Um, and again, I, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to talk to anybody outside the podcast about this and how it would work in their schools. Um, so... Yeah, so it was a, it was a it was a real success to be honest. And again, it's that idea of small groups, which again, you know, it's having that luxury to be able to to do that within the classroom. I appreciate that. It's definitely something to look forward to in the future because mm-hmm. students are obviously going to, like you said, you, you know, your research has shown that these particular students seem to benefit. But actually, I think it would benefit everybody yes. in the classroom if they had access yes. to this because you're yeah. going to end up with students who are equipped with strategies, ready to learn, mm-hmm. and hopefully will help them mm-hmm. have a more positive experience of school. Yeah. Maybe get yeah. more out of it. Yeah, that, that's that's the key to it, really, to, to 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 let them appreciate that school is a place where they where they belong and where they, where their their contribution is worth is worth something. Definitely. So I think we're widening the scope of the research now, aren't we, Sue? Yeah. Where yeah. Uh, we were going to look at children, you know, look at the impact on children with special educational needs as well, um, and so we've put a call out. But what we found is that secondary school teachers are also interested in developing materials um, so we're looking at widening the scope so we've got the special me time that Sue's developed and the quality me time yes. um, and, <laughs> and now and now looking at developing something that's appropriate for secondary school pupils mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um, so we're, we're looking for anybody who's interested in helping us with that project um, in primary settings and in secondary settings um, so that we can develop materials, particularly for secondary school settings, and mm. then evaluate their effectiveness uh, mm. for pupils. That's brilliant. So how can our listeners get in touch with you if they're interested in taking part in the programme? Um, so they can contact us at Cardiff Met, Cardiff Metropolitan University. Um, uh, my email address is rajpacker at cardiffmet.ac.uk. And Sue's email address is s 
davis d-a-v-i-s at cardiffmet.ac.uk yeah and we're also on twitter as well if people want to to contact us on twitter and my twitter is at d-r-s-u-z-y-w at dr susie w yeah and mine is um at Rhiannon, R-H-I-A-N-N-O-N, 220. We'll put those in the in the episode description oh, as well, just to Thank help you. out. But that, so, that's brilliant. Yeah, try to remember your Twitter name. It's very, <laughs> it's very challenging. <laughs> Especially when you've got to spell it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, I copied that's you. <laughs> With some other colleagues, I've got a book coming out on transition. And so what I was going to mention is that transition for quiet shy and anxious children can also be quite challenging mm. um yeah and children with sen or additional learning needs um so i've been looking at that as well and sort of uh, how we can support effective transition for all pupils at, at different stages um so we've got with some colleagues who work at university of south wales have got a book coming out on uh, best practice in transition with critical publishing Um, Thank you so much, Rhiannon and Susan, for talking to us about shy children. I think we've learned a lot and we're going to be a lot more mindful when we're grouping children and trying to interact with these children in the future. So thank you so much. In People's Causing Concern today, we've decided to talk about some of the contradictions that are going on because we're all back in school, I think, by now. Yeah. and I bet everyone's feeling pretty overwhelmed. So we're going to air some of the things that are overwhelming us. And if you've got any stories, please share them on Twitter or get in touch on Instagram or contact us on our email, noncontacttime at gmail.com. So what's it been like being back at work for you, Hannah? I think the school's guidance from the government is a bit like Boris's guidance on just everything in general so go to work don't go to work use public transport don't use public transport (laughs) I feel like the school's guidance you know wear a mask don't wear a mask (laughs) I don't understand at all I don't know whether it's just me or I just I feel sometimes like if I had very clear instructions that had very clear boundaries I could work with that that's how I that's how I do relationship management in the classroom I will make sure that there are very clear boundaries and the students know the consequences but they also know you know what happens if they do really well and that's that's just how I work that's how I like to work I like to have boundaries but with all this guidance that is given schools it's very much wishy-washy and I find that really difficult and I understand why I understand that schools have got to you know schools in different settings have got different concerns and different resources and different buildings and different pupils and all that kind of stuff but I would just like something very clear that says this is safe do this or this will be make you safer I just would like that that would really help me (laughs) (laughs) please please (laughs) give us that so what other contradictions have you found Hannah so I my favorite one is when Boris was explaining that schools don't need to wear masks for the whole of the summer and then on the Friday night just before we were due to come back after the bank holiday weekend on the Tuesday he said masks uh, can or should be worn in corridors and communal areas in schools that are in lockdown areas so I work in a school that's in a a lockdown area we've gone into further lockdowns um, and I don't understand why I'm expected to wear one in the corridor but I'm not expected to wear one in the classroom (laughs) I don't understand like am I 
safer in a classroom that's got <laughs> I don't I don't understand I don't um, I guess the big question is what is a communal area exactly <laughs> yeah how do you define a communal area because I had this debate um, before we recorded this episode and the person I was speaking to said well a communal area is where everybody goes and I was like that's my classroom everybody goes in my classroom <laughs> because you know students are moving around the school to come to me and so is this a community well no it's not communal because you've not got everybody in there at once mm. but not not every corridor is going to have every person in the school there at once so yeah it's it's woolly i think the one that really bothered me is the government guidance says that we have to teach in school but if any students are off we have to teach online and it's just while maintaining a work-life balance <laughs> and they want it to be filmed and i think that's not really been thought through is when are we going to film all these lessons i know i'm trying to get a um, visualizer at the moment that can record my demonstrations so that they can go into our powerpoints and we're very much scrounging to try and find a video or a youtube video that links to like every lesson we do but it's just not possible for every single lesson and some lessons for art are going to be and i know art teachers can probably sympathize with this it's pick up where you were, continue working and make it better and keep exploring that idea or keep exploring that skill. Um, so you don't actually need a video for that, really. It's not yeah. like you're going to go, so you're halfway through your picture. This is how you go from halfway to the end. I mean, you might have that for some things that are more complicated. But yeah, trying to do video lessons lessons while being in the classroom as well as sharing stuff at home, as well as doing home learning. And as well as having work-life balance, it's going to be very interesting this year. <laughs> I think for you, what you, you'd said before about using the visualizer while you're doing demonstrations to the class, mm. use your visualizer just to record what you're doing on that piece of paper mm. or whatever materials that you're using. That's really useful. And I was thinking last night, what could I do? Because I can't really video myself playing instruments because the children might not have them at home. That's so true. I think... And I suppose for you as well, if you were using clay or any type of materials that the students won't have, you, there's no point in you videoing it. So you're going to have to create something bespoke. Mm. Whereas if you were an English teacher and you were delivering a section on Macbeth, you could have that exam question on the board to the children in the class. But you can also send that as a, you know, as a PowerPoint or whatever it is back to the students. And that's why I find, or that's where I find the difference between certain practical lessons and theory lessons that you know that the work-life balance is different and we've just got to try and figure out ways to cope with that so my way is I'm going to cheat in home learning because we can't sing in lesson my home learning is going to be singing so I'm going to ask the students to sing them sing I'm going to ask them to record themselves and send it across so I'm going to say that that's also going to be the work that students are going to be doing as part of their you know if they're not in because they're self-isolating that's the online work that I'm going to set because killing two birds with one stone the lazy teachers handbook would be proud of me I think <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that that's allowed I'd but I'd love to have singing as my home learning I know some kids are going to hate it but if someone gave me your home learning is to sing I'd be like yes better than writing an essay <laughs> this is better than writing an essay yeah we're looking at our home learning really really carefully just to kind of make it we want to make it fun and we want students drawing for pleasure which is really hard when you have a big red button that says you didn't do your homework <laughs> but um yeah for us it's going to be draw things that make you happy because 
at the moment trying to get a kid to draw something that they hate. <laughs> it's going to be like pulling teeth. <laughs> I think the other one that I really liked, um, Hannah mentioned this one to me, is how the government always issues things on a Friday to implement for a Monday. I'm sure everyone's finding that really hard. And can we just give a round of applause to the head teachers? Because um, you guys mustn't have had much of a summer break and every time <laughs> there's something, I do think, oh my gosh, that's going to be done by Monday. That really annoys me. After saying at the very beginning of the summer holidays that teachers were going to work through summer because we didn't have, or we, did, we weren't in school between March and July. Yeah. And then to change that and issue guidance for September in July on the last week of the summer holiday, uh, sorry, the last week of July, last mm. week of term, and that guidance, so head teachers used that guidance to plan what they were gonna do in September, and then we got issued new guidance that changed slightly. So head teachers, all of their plans had to be adapted towards that, and I just think those head teachers, a lot of them on Twitter have said things like, I don't need to adapt my plans um, because I anticipated that the guidance was going to change. So I created a million scenarios so we can just pick a scenario out of the hat and just go with that one. Because I just think, as a teacher, you know, if you want students to do well, you've got to provide them with the correct environment. Yeah. And I feel like the government is not providing the correct environment for teachers in order for them to do the best for the children. And I don't know why they've got so many experts and so much time and so much money money that they're just not delivering and head teachers have done a better job i don't understand well this is the big thing isn't it education should be led by people who understand education shock <laughs> shock horror it's like a big problem that we have in the uk so keep going back to my round table idea where we have teachers like jury service so every year um, teachers all over the country from different demographics are chosen to be part of a panel that talk about and debate policy for the year and then you've got teachers who have been to private school you'll have teachers who work in deprived areas you'll have teachers who work with lots of international students and you've got the benefits of all that that contextual knowledge so that when the education secretary says we want to implement this those teachers can go no, that's not going to work. Please, can we do it like this? Or, yeah, that's a great idea. Why don't we enhance it like this? And it's more of a participation leadership or participative leadership. I, I really like that idea. I really, really wish that was a thing. Um, I know in Australia that a lot of the Department for Education, things are more centralised in Australia. They are state to state. But um, I know a lot of people who work in the Department of Education because they all used to be teachers. And I think that's, we're missing a trick with that in politics, that we need people at the top that have actually worked in those environments. And I think your round table idea is amazing. Can anyone make that happen for us? <laughs> <laughs> please, please. <laughs> So in any other business, we're going to talk about some upcoming episodes. Um, next week, we're going to be having a well-being episode. It's our first well-being episode of the season, of season two, I should say. Um, and we're going to be talking to Emily Dixon. Here is Emily's favourite teacher. Uh, my favourite teacher was Madame Barry at school. She was this glamorous French teacher who waltzed the corridors speaking for Emily. You are late, you are late. But I loved French because of it. I did really well in French because of it. I regret not taking French later on in life. 
Um, but I'll always remember her. If anyone asked me who my favourite teacher is, it was Madame Barry. We're also going to be talking to the Teacher Development Trust in an upcoming episode. They're going to talk about CPD opportunities, um, how you can do benchmarking for your CPD programs at your school. And they've also got a conference coming up in October. So check out their website. There's lots going on. Um, we also will be talking to Ellie Dix from The Dark Imp. She's gonna to talk to us about the importance of using board games and games in your lessons. And we're gonna do an episode about games and competition in lessons. Um, she also has a book, really good recommended read, The Board Game Family. I've actually been reading it over summer. It's a great read. The best part of it, if you're someone that doesn't know what games to get your family, there's a whole section in the back of games and what they're really good for and I was like this is brilliant now I can choose my board games um, but it's a great book and she's also got a blog that you can read that goes with it and some great resources also don't forget about our patreon if you sign up to our patreon it means that you get the episodes early there's lots of bonus material we're going to be putting up loads more bonus material throughout the season so check it out if you're on our patreon it means you get episodes on Monday and they're ad free thanks for listening and we'll see you next Next week. Bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.